here. Um, do we have any more? First time guests today. We want to welcome you today. We have um, a bag, a welcome bag for you. And in that bag is um, a Bible. We have some candy. And then also there's a card. There's a little white card. If you wouldn't mind filling out that card, we'd like to just share our appreciation of, of you coming today. So um, with that, we're going to go ahead and get started with our service. Well, welcome again to HBF. You're joining us online. We're glad that you are with us. If you have your Bibles, be turning the book of Exodus. We're still in chapter 12 this morning, and uh, I'm excited to get into that. But before we do, I just want to share a few uh, pictures from our trip and a little update on Boston. If you were not here Wednesday night, you missed a really good update by uh, Angela and uh, Angela Plish and Brad or uh, Brady McGuire. Or I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry. Uh, what'd you say? Oh, yeah, Brady Barnes. Yes, I do know Brady Barnes. Is Brady in the house, by the way? Is he working in the, with the kids? That's what I was afraid of. I was wanting to have him come and close the prayer today. But um, <clears throat> I just wanted to share a few pictures of the Boston trip and uh, just kind of thank you for, not kind of, I want to thank you all for praying for that. I will be brief. We had a great time uh, there in Boston, and um, I appreciate Jace, Jason McGuire filling in and standing in last week. He did an excellent job of preaching while we were there. And so I'm going to have to step back. I, I don't see those on the back, so I'm just going to kind of narrate these from the side here. So uh, that church building is the church where they meet. They're actually now uh, going to be evicted because they hold to the King James Bible exclusively for preaching and teaching in their church. So that's not acceptable there uh, to the, the church that stewards that building, uh, Ruggles Baptist Church. So they're going to be evicted. So be praying for Mike and the church now as they're looking for a new church home. I'll show you a picture of that in just a moment. So while we were there, we were able to, to uh, see some sights. Go to the next slide. There we go. Oh, it's in the back. Hallelujah to you. So uh, Pastor Mike Renault, uh, he get, does a good job of prepping us. So I encourage any of you to, if you want to go on this trip, Mike will get you geared up and ready to go. And, and of course, we'll get you prepared as well. But that's him at, as he was preparing us to go. And uh, the next picture is Boston Commons. It just shows the uh, kind of the landscape. This is right in the heart of the city. Uh, and, uh, and so it's uh, interesting, kind of like Manhattan has, um, you know, the, uh, the big Central Park. Uh, this is not as nice as that, but it is a big green space that they've created out there, and it gives you a good uh, lay of the land right in the heart of the city. His church is not really, it's just a short distance from there, um, and that, what you see in the background is a financial district. So we were able to traverse all of that uh, while we were there, and uh, one of the big reasons that we were there, most importantly, was to invite people to attend the meeting called Friends of Internationals. Friends of Internationals is a, is a ministry that uh, Andrew Ong stewarded at Midtown Baptist Temple, and, uh, and uh, Brooke Sidebottom has taken, and, and, uh, taken it to Boston to, be, uh, to help with this church plant. So we went out, and I think, I don't know if Jim, Jim is in here, but Jim and Chris, you guys can remember what it was like uh, they can appreciate the numbers here because when we went three years ago, it was pretty Spartan, and uh, it still is a very small nucleus. The church is small, but we had over we calculated over 150 international students. We had the building open for three to four hours, and they just rotated through from our invitation uh, the days before. And a lot of them were from Northeastern University there in Boston, and uh, a lot of them were international, uh, and a lot of them were Indians. Um, and, and different Asians and different, uh, you know, folks from all over the world. So it was really exciting. And so we all, between myself and Brady and Angela, we all had key contacts throughout the week, uh, and it was neat to see them come and build that relationship there at the uh, Friends of Internationals. And that was the highlight, really, of the week, and it was amazing to see God bring those folks. So from there, they'll try to foster the relationships um, and continue to build on those and win those folks to Christ and get them into the will of God and discipleship. This is just a quick picture. We uh, uh, were up on Northeastern Sunday morning, uh, and uh, uh, before Jason started preaching here, we were out hanging out with the frat brothers, Sarah, and uh, they were cooking up their uh, alligator there as their third annual alligator roast on the campus in Northeastern. So uh, I, was able, I was actually, right after that picture was taken, I visited with the, the guy who organized that. He was there just to my right, so we had a good visit. Uh, didn't get the gospel of them, but we got a chance to see Boston, and uh, and uh, that's actually the bay um, down in the north end, and a beautiful city, uh, and they have terrible food, though. I would not recommend going there and eating the food. It's just absolutely horrendous, but uh, <laughs> next, don't, don't show them that. Um, anyway, there was some good food, 
And uh, we had one of those meals. The rest was pretty much out of our refrigerator or at the timeout. What they, time, I don't know what that was. that called? Timeout grill or whatever. Um, cafeteria. But it's obviously it's a historic city. If you want to take a mission trip, this is a good uh, and, um, you know, domestic trip that you can take. Uh, and you see some incredible history. That's Paul Revere, uh, you know, right behind him. I didn't get a picture of it. Is the is the bell tower, you know, uh, but one by sea and two by land. Uh, and so uh, it's really pretty impressive. And uh, and that, by the way, that food, that horrible food is just like literally catty corner across the street from there. So, uh, but at any rate, uh, and then I want to show you this picture coming up here. This is what I need you to pray for. Uh, Mike, uh, that's actually sitting out on the steps there is Meredith, his wife, and Mike is standing there with the realtor and uh, and the other fellows from Harvest Baptist Blue Springs, he joined the team as well this last week. Well, uh, there we were looking at that property. That is an industrial building, obviously, a commercial office building. That is the, the property they're looking at, potentially um, getting a lease on to have their church take the third floor, uh, about 6,000 square feet of the third floor. Uh, so they'd be moving from Ruggles, the church I showed you uh, downtown, uh, just outside of the city. So it'd be kind of like going from you know, downtown on the, you know, area, uh, you know, power and light district, or maybe somewhere like that in our city, you know, down in that core, going out to Brookside, and maybe a little bit further, maybe out to Shawnee Mission. And so, uh, and so that's where they're looking at going. It's a good location, but it is not convenient for all the students. So they're kind of conflicted, and they don't have enough finances right now to be able to have a campus, you know, here, which would be their main church, and then have a spot uh, down in the uh, urban core. So, that's a big thing for them. Be praying for that. And as I mentioned, Mike does a great job of preparing the team. That picture there shows some of our teammates uh, from other churches. First Baptist New Philly also came, uh, and that was uh, a good bit of their team there that was with them. We were, again, same night we took the other picture down on the north side, and, and he's getting us organized. So if you ever want to take this trip, uh, I want to be as quick as possible. Just remember, it's about budget about 1300 U.S. It gets cheaper with more people uh, because our room accommodations, at least, you know, we don't know what will happen between now and next year. But it has kind of maintained the same price. Um, uh, the, most of the expense is room. Uh, the flight is not that expensive. Uh, and, and what have you, it's the room. And we, we go to the grocery store. And I think for, I did the math just for over, just like less than 100 bucks. Right out of $100, we fed three of us for the week. So it wasn't that, that much money. Uh, make sure you got a real ID or, or a passport because you can't travel anymore without them. And uh, get to walking because this, this trip, I don't know how many miles we walked, but Jim calculated last time Jim uh, went three years ago, and it was a lot, and it's still a lot. I, I think I walk more every time I go. So, so it's a good trip, and we encourage you to go on that. All right, so that's it for that trip. I would appreciate Angela and Brady um, and uh, their, their investment in that trip. They did a really good job. And they, actually, this is a good uh, trip for a small team. It really is not a trip to take 12 people necessarily because it's a big burden on the little church. Uh, so this is a great trip to take four to six people. be ideal for a trip uh, like this. So if you're interested, hit me up and I'll get you connected and we'll get you on the list for next year. All right, so that's my Boston update. I appreciate you guys praying for that. If you have your Bibles, I've asked you to turn to Exodus 12. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat rack in front of you. Turn to the, uh, page 100. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. We'll, we got one right here in the seat, and you can, or you should have one near you that you can get a hold of, and it will get you started. Uh, and again, uh, appreciate everybody that was here last week and, and all the things that God is doing. So um, now as we go into Exodus chapter 12 one more time, uh, I continue to hang on the rim here. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a part of a series we're doing in Exodus called the uh, Getting Out of Egypt sermon series. So we're looking at a Devotional application, of course. Uh, historically, God was really removing Israel uh, from Egypt and the bondage thereof, and, of course, delivering them into the promised land. And so for us, in an inspirational application, we know that God is going to deliver us, right? He has delivered us spiritually from the bondage of sin, and someday He will catch us away and take us to the clouds. And we need to be ready. There's a lot of analogies that we can draw from this. And as we've been going through this uh, passage, we've seen several wonderful things in chapter 12 regarding the Passover. And we're looking at how God delivered God's people from the bondage of this world so they could serve Him in the promised land. And, uh, and so we've been hanging on this rim for quite a while. Uh, and it's an important chapter in Exodus as the children of Israel's identity changes from slaves to armies of the living God by the time you get to the last verse of the, the, the chapter. The last few messages I've uh, focused on the power of the Passover 
to protect the children of Israel from the wrath of God and purify them for God's purpose. So today I'm going to take and, and move past that and move past the Passover to um, what is obvious, and, uh, but I, ironically is not really a uh, lot to be said about, and that is the 10th plague. So we spent weeks and weeks, right, walking through, at least nine weeks, walking through the, the, the nine preceding plagues, and then all of a sudden it's like, what plagues, right? We haven't talked about them in a while. And this 10th plague comes, as promised in, in Exodus chapter 11, uh, and it comes very rapidly, very quickly, and there's really only a couple verses uh, that deal with it here in the chapter. But I did want to take a moment and, and, and deal with this 10th uh, this plague. This is instructional to those who are born again and faithful in the call of God upon our lives. While we've been saved and, and given so much, we must not forget what God has saved us from. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, God only takes two verses out of the 51 in this chapter to deal with this 10th plague, this 10th promised plague that he, uh, he lays out for us in Exodus 11, 1 through 10. That's less than 4% of this 12th chapter is given to this devastating plague. But its impact is still being felt today as the nation that inhabits Israel today is the remnant of these slaves turned into an army after the final plague of the Passover as they were released by um, Pharaoh. So if you do have your Bibles here, let's look at Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, verse, just a couple of verses here, and then we're going to take this apart and look at it in its pieces. Then I'll get you out of here because somebody wants to watch the Chiefs today. So Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29, it says, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne under the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all, his, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Heavenly Father, as we come to your throne this morning, the sober reality is that even today in our nation, Lord, there are many houses full of dead people, and they don't even know it. They're dead in trespass and sins. And Lord, we pray today that the word of God would quicken our lives and our hearts this morning, that we would look at this 10th plague and it would move us today in a real way to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have as a church body this week to assemble your word. Lord, we have found the book, but so many people have not. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would stir up our pure minds in your word today, that we would be moved and motivated uh, to really understand the implications of what happens if we do not get the gospel where it needs to go on time. Lord, I pray, God, that we would remember uh, the need to pray for people, even people with hard hearts, so that they'd receive the gospel while they can. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for reminding us of the wages of sin. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This title is very simple. It is The, wage, the Wages of Sin. And we all know Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, that's a simple verse, but it's very profound. And you know what? The, root, the truth of the matter is it's far from many people today. Uh, you can quote John, uh, Romans uh, 6.23 all day long, but a lot of people don't really get the gravity of it. You know, Pharaoh didn't get the gravity of what was going on in his midst. He was going one plague after the next plague after the next plague after the next plague, Nine plagues, and it hadn't really set in on him what the consequences of rebelling against Moses' God was, Jehovah God. What was the consequence of rebelling? Well, ultimately, it brings death to his house. And like a train whistle-blowing as it barrels towards you on the tracks, Pharaoh has bound himself to the, the tracks with bands of pride. It would be bad enough if he bound himself, <clears throat> uh, bound himself to sin, but he is binding his family to his just reward. In the tenth short plague, we see Pharaoh is given the reward for his stubborn, hard-hearted rebellion against God. The check has been cashed, and the firstborn are dead. Not only does it affect his house, it affects everybody in the nation. And at length, he is responsible. He wants to be God. Well, guess what, Pharaoh? This is what it's like to be responsible for people. This falls on your shoulders because you would not bow your knee to the Lord. So the wages of sin are death to the lost. Very simply put, if we just stopped right there and really thought deeply on that, what would that mean to us in a practical way today? 
There's nobody in this room that doesn't know somebody who's lost. As a matter of fact, uh, in this room, there probably is somebody who's lost. I don't know who you are, but God knows who you are. I don't know the hearts. God knows the hearts. In a room this size, it's very likely there is someone who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you're lost. If the floor was going to open up and swallow the lost, you would go down with it. And it's a scary thing to think about. And it's a real thing to think about. Because all of us are on a time clock. And we all know death is coming. But we all think somehow like we're going to escape it. Or we just ignore it. We put it out of our mind. You know, for those of us that are saved, obviously we have reckoned with it. And we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the lost, man, I tell you, the wages of sin is death. And so the wages of sin will be paid. You notice in verse 29 it says, And it came to pass. It came to pass. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of verbiage, right? There's over 20 verses. There's 28 verses preceding this. And it's about the Passover, and it's about Israel, and it's about all these things that God is that we've taken a lot of time to talk about in regard to the Passover lamb and Jesus being our Passover, and all these wonderful types that are wonderful to us because we're saved. But it comes to pass. It comes to pass to, to, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to those families. It comes to pass that the wages of sin will be paid. God is good for his word. He's good for his word. He's, he has been warning Pharaoh to let his people go or else for nine plagues, for goodness sake. And in Exodus 11, 1-7, God prophesied this judgment of the tenth plague to Moses and made sure that everyone understood that the purpose of this plague was to set a difference between the Egyptians and the children of Israel. There's a clear difference now between the children of Israel and the Egyptian people. In Exodus 11 and verse 7, the scripture says, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast. They that know how, <clears throat> or uh, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So God said it would come around midnight, and that's exactly when it came. Around midnight, there was that great cry that went out. And judgment is coming upon the world system. It's coming upon the world system. The times of the Gentiles will come to a close, and the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our God. Revelation 11 and verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there, went, uh, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only going to occur in our hearts in the church as it is today, spiritually speaking, in the kingdom of God, but after the Lord catches us away, he will establish his kingdom, and literally the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And the tension that you can already begin to feel in society against the truth of God's word, against Christianity, biblical Christianity, against people who love God, and the darkness of this world is very, it's palatable. You can start to feel it. It's just going to get worse as people rebel and their heart gets harder and harder against the truth. You're like, man, Brian, I came to church to get some good news. We got good news. If you're saved, you got the good news. The problem, we're living on, hey, man, we're, we're living, we're in Christ. We're covered by the blood. The death angel has passed over us. But there is a, there is a society that's on a crash course with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And judgment is coming to the world's leader. You know, Pharaoh fancied himself as one of the most, if not the most powerful man on the planet at the time. You know, I bet we could think of a few politicians that probably think that they are the most powerful man on the planet at this time. As a matter of fact, Americans like to think that whoever's in the presidential office, that's the most powerful man at the time. And that is pretty powerful. There's a couple others that would disagree. Pope, probably one of them, but that's another story. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh um, he fancied himself as this, this powerful man. And he is simply following Satan's script for his life. And he is not unlike uh, <clears throat> many an ambitious and godless leader today. You see, Satan, Satan's time will shortly be up, just as the Word of God says. He is the, the father of lies, and he's going to be taken out. In John eight forty four, the Bible says, Ye are of your father the devil, 
and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. When Jesus spoke those words, he was speaking to religious Jews. He was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, who uh, would not receive his word. And he tell, later on tells them, you won't receive my word. Because you know what? You, won't, you, don't, you, don't, uh, uh, you, you don't believe my father. They're like, who's your father? And they get into this argument about who his father is. And he basically lays out to him that he is Messiah, that his father is in heaven. They reject the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can't receive it. You won't receive it because you won't receive me. If you don't receive Jesus Christ, you don't receive God. You can call him whatever name, but ultimately God is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. God the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, these three are one. There is no other name under heaven whereby a man must be saved. It's not Buddha. It's not Allah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. And that's what makes our message, though it is awesome and simple and clear, so uh, it's just so untenable to so many. Because it seems so narrow. And it is narrow. Because God makes it very clear. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the life. There's a broad path of destruction. You can jump on the coexist bandwagon and end up dying and going to hell. Or you can come through the door. The door of the sheepfold is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the father of lies will be taken out. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the, the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 is actually speaking very, uh, very specifically about a time yet to come. Uh, <clears throat> and it's the beginning of the end for Satan, the man of sin, as he will be quarantined to earth shortly before the second coming at the conclusion of of the great tribulation. And so let me say that, let me rewind that and make sure you understand. So there's a time in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, or what's called the tribulation period, where Satan will literally <clears throat> indwell Antichrist. And at that point, the clock's ticking three and a half years, and it's over. The father of lies will be judged, and it will be finished. Well, until the end of the millennium when he's loose for a season, then he's cast in the lake of fire. But for, in essence, his work here will get done. The prince and the power of the air will be destroyed. He's the father of lies. He's a, he's a, he's a, <clears throat> he's a wicked uh, uh, ruler on this planet, uh, just like Pharaoh who represented him. And he's the prince and power of the air that will be destroyed. In Ephesians 2, 2, the Bible says, Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, it's dealing with Christians. It's not, Paul isn't speaking to lost people. He says there's a time when we... Christians. He's talking to the saints in Ephesus historically. But all of us that are born again, we, we had a time where we were on the path, right? The course of this world. And we were going wherever the Lord, wherever the, the God of this world told us to go, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You've probably seen those, those uh, memes and stuff on social media where people are just following their phones, right? And then they just walk right off the cliff. Scared some of you, didn't I? All right, so. Right, that's, there's a course that is set by this world. And the prince in power of the air, he's directing people right off a cliff. That's where it ends. Pharaoh was, was uh, controlled by the same prince and wielded his power over the firstborn of God, the children of Israel. In his reign, of course, as we started our study, he oppressed God's people. What started off as a sweet deal for them, what started off as a, as a, as a blessing because of Joseph and, and, uh, and the relationship he had in Egypt ends up becoming a terrible nightmare as their whole nation goes into bondage under the hand of Pharaoh. The king of all the children of pride is, is another name that we could find uh, and would also be appropriate for Pharaoh because it represents Satan himself. In Job 41, speaking of Leviathan, it says, He beholdeth all, all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. If you're full of pride, guess who your king is? It's no accident that in our culture today, we're just crazy about proud perversion. I mean, let's get perverse and be proud of it. Satan laughs as people take the wide path to destruction. 
as they turn grace into lasciviousness, God is, is storing up wrath against the day of judgment, just as he did with Pharaoh and his followers. The king over all the children of pride is, is covered in scales of pride himself. He is the king of pride. Pharaoh was so proud, he didn't believe Moses, uh, Moses' God could touch him. Yet he found out Jehovah is not only capable of troubling him and his nation, but uh, terminating them when he chooses. Those nine plagues, what those are, are mercy. What those are is grace. What those are is the goodness of God, trying to teach people uh, some lessons. And of course, it worked for Israel. It pulled them out of idolatry by the uh, second or third plague, right? And so they finally got separated and sanctified. You know, some of the difficulties that we may even face in our culture today, they're actually good for us because it helps us remember who we really need to trust, right? When inflation gets too high and and the economy gets too bad, right? Instead of, you know, complaining or worrying about the ballot box, born-again people, what do they do? They hit their knees, right? We're like, Lord, help. We cry out to God because God is the only answer. God's always been the only answer, but sometimes we forget, right? Israel forgot where the source of their power really came from, where the blessing really came from. It was from God. It was never from the, the kings of this world. It was never from, the, from Pharaoh, right? It was never from the wicked devices that this world has to offer. But yet we, like sheep, are led astray. Today, many are just like Pharaoh. They don't believe God will judge them of their sin. They don't. Peter wrote of this almost 2,000 years ago in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, to this passage. I'll turn with you. We'll see who gets there first. So when you get it, yell out. Oh, come on. You guys are, I can't believe it. You guys are shy. Second Peter chapter 3. I got it! <laughs> I did not have a bookmark there either. I'll give you just a second. So I'll uh, take a... I like this. I'm sorry. Swig of water. I did not know swig had anything to do with alcohol until after I became a pastor. Someone corrected me one day. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, my whole life I just called drinking swigs. I didn't know that. That's why I was enlightened. Anyway, First Peter chapter, or Second Peter chapter three, verse one. Let's look at this passage briefly. I won't take a lot of time here, but I want you to see this because a lot of people are like Pharaoh and they don't really believe God's judgment's coming. Second, Second Peter chapter three, verse one. This second epistle, beloved. Again, talking to the church. I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. He's like, these are things you need to remember, things we've talked about before. That ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, verse 3, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. And I want you to look at verse 4. And saying, this is what they're saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So God records in his word for us today that there are people that scoff at what the word of God says about coming judgment. They scoff at Romans 6.23 when it says, For the wages of sin is death. They don't really believe that God will bring his word to pass. But God's word will come to pass. The wages of sin is death. Judgment is coming. It's coming, especially upon those who will not believe God's word. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Why should I be afraid of him? Why should I listen to his word? I haven't, Jesus hasn't been around for 2,000 years. And if he was around, he was just a man. And he wasn't really God. All these arguments I used to make when I was lost. Lost and without hope. Lost and without Christ. I know what it is to think like that. I used to think that. Well, Jesus might have lived historically, but was he really God? I mean, really? And then you, oh, the nice one to follow up with is, you know, the Bible's just a bunch of books a bunch of people wrote and put together. Like I've read it, right? Everyone I know that's ever said that's never read the Bible themselves. Once you read it, it'll, it'll convict you. You'd be like, it's like standing before Moses. You realize, uh-oh, these are the words of God. It's just up to us to believe them and take them and receive them. Verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. They're willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There are many that are too proud to believe the judgment for sin will ever come or touch them in a personal way. Many are oblivious that they have bound them so oblivious that they have bound themselves to the rails of judgment on the train track of death. And it's their pride that has them bound there. Jesus said uh, this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You all know John 3.16, but in John 3.17 he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. God is not wanting to run anybody over on the train tracks of judgment. That's not really what he wants to do. He sent his son to get in the way of his just wrath so that we have an advocate propitiation. Jeff was just talking about that this morning. He, he that believeth on him is not, con- is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We either take that to the bank or we leave it. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now again, you're the amen choir. You're coming today to church. We're coming to the word of God. Why? Because we know that we are better off when we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for Savior, but as sanctification as we've been talking about. We understand that. But you know what? There's a whole world out there that's lost. They are condemned already. When one refuses to listen to to the train whistle, they hurt themselves and those who are bound uh, to them with the cords of sin. You know, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 34 says, Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates. The problem is that people, it's not that God's not calling. As a matter of fact, he's calling all men everywhere to repent. The problem is that men aren't listening. And you know what? We can, we can crank up the fog machine. We can get the band going. We can get the marketing methods going on and all of those things that you want to try to do to get people to listen. But at the end of the day, what we really need to get people to listen is genuine Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, prayer, preaching, reality that, you know what? A care upon us that people are perishing. And, and it affects us on the inside. And we actually care for people and we pray, and we ask God, and we witness, and we share the Word of God as we ought. If you missed the men's breakfast yesterday, I mean, you missed a good one if you're a man. Uh, man, I mean, Ray brought it. Blow the trumpet. If you don't blow the trumpet, whose hands has blood on them? The man, the watchman on the wall. We're the watchman on the wall. It's a good one. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me, all they that hate me love death. Beloved, there are a lot of people today that hate the Lord. And yeah, there's a lot of dumb things Christians do, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about American Christianity and Christian culture. I'm talking there are people that that, that love death because they hate God. When I was lost, man, I sided with death myself. It is the natural inclination of a lost person. The wages of sin cost more than you can afford. The wages of sin cost more than you can afford. So we understand that the wages of sin is death to the lost, and the wages of sin will be paid. I mean, God will, God's on the way with them. If you don't repent, he's in, he's, the, track is, the train is coming down the track. But the wages of sin cost more than you can afford. We live in a time of easy credit. When I was a young, young man, <clears throat> man, my parents, they didn't get the easy credit that we get. Back in the, in the 60s and 70s, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but I do remember the 70s, and... Uh, I think credit interest rate was like big. There wasn't just easy credit, you know. You just you just couldn't charge up your bills. You know, you had to pay the piper. And today, of course, that model's changed, and, and they'll leverage you. I remember a few years ago, uh, in one of our housing, the housing crises, I think we've had two or three since I've been an adult, right? That they say, oh, you can get in this house, just get this adjustable rate mortgage, right? It's at three percent today. And then get leverage way above your ability to pay it, right? And so we, our calculations say you can afford a $500,000 home 
on your $25,000 salary. Okay, come on in and, and let's get this house deal going. Of course, you, we know where that went. That crashed big time. Why? Because people were overextended. You know, that's how we operate sometimes. The wages of sin cost more than we can afford. We think, well, I'll cover it later. I'll cover it later. I'll cover it later. The truth is, none of us can cover our sin debt. If that were the case, Jesus wouldn't have came and died. We have covered this chapter. We covered what was coming to Pharaoh in chapter 11, but it bears repeating in, in case someone who is, a hard, who is hard-hearted is listening. Pharaoh knew he was, he was writing checks his soul could not cash, but he kept writing them anyway. I mean, it got so obvious, as we saw in previous messages, that his own servants were like, Stop! Stop fighting with Moses. Just let them have what they want. This is killing us, literally. But his pride wouldn't let it go. And he kept writing those checks that he couldn't cash. And of course, the wages of sin in chapter 12 here, in these two verses that we've covered, is his firstborn. And we saw in Exodus 4.22 the importance of the word firstborn. But I know you slept since then. And it was, it was when God called Israel out of the promised land. You remember all the way back there in Exodus 4? I've referenced this verse a lot as we've gone through the series. But in Exodus 4.22, Moses, or God said this to Moses. And he says, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. And I've really put a lot of emphasis on that because that's a parallel. I've talked to you about how the only sons, right? There's the son Israel here, singular. There's the sons of God, which are angelic. And then there's us in, in 1 John chapter 3, right? We are the sons of God. And so that's a pretty uh, exclusive word. And he calls Israel, as Israel, like we are individually sons of God, Israel as a nation is a son of God. And he dealt with them corporately as he deals with us individually. And of course, corporately, we come together as the church. We are the bride and the body of Christ. All right, so uh, I've talked a lot about that. I'm not going to rehearse all that right now. But he says, after that, comma, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that ye may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So, you know, Saturday at Colorado U, right? Buffaloes are playing. Everybody knows now Primetime's coaching Buffalo. How many, who doesn't know Primetime is coaching Colorado Buffaloes? All right. I know about a third of you say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> who was Primetime? Well, get out your Greek lexicon. And uh, so, so there used to be a famous football player called uh, uh, Deion Sanders. I forgot his name. And he's now coaching the Colorado Buffaloes, right? And so this weekend... Uh, uh, to get him amped up to play whoever they were playing, which I don't remember who it was. Uh, he gets in the locker room with his players, and he's, and he's, uh, he's telling them, you know, and he's playing the father role. And, and he's talking about how important it is to be a good father. And he goes, you know what? And he, I'm paraphrasing this. You can go find it on social media somewhere. But he basically tells his team, he says, look, you're not my kids, but I love you like my kids. You're like my kids. And you know, when they start talking about you, it's like they're talking about my kids. And it gets personal, you know. And, man, he's working it. It's getting personal. I mean, you're talking about my kids. You talk about my wife, it's getting personal. You talk about my kids, it's getting personal. And, you know, he's like amping them up. They go out and destroy whoever they're playing. And he's, he's taking the daddy role there. Good for him. I mean, you know, good tactics, good coaching, whatever. I have no problems with it. Do what you're going to do. I tell you this. God wasn't kidding, though, when he was getting personal with Pharaoh. He says, this is my son. This is my firstborn. And this is getting personal. The reason that worked for Dion is because it worked for God. He's just stealing stuff out of God's playbook. And it was getting personal. Even thy firstborn. God told Pharaoh through Moses that Israel was his firstborn. God takes the firstborn of every Egyptian and their cattle in one moment, just like he said he would do, and they're gone. Boom. There ain't nothing you can do about it. You can't go back. And all of us that have faced tragic losses at different times, you just wish there was something you could do, and there's nothing else you can do. The time to deal with death, the time to deal with the penalty for sin is before it happens. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to preach the gospel. It's not to wait till we get to the judgment seat of Christ and look back and say, man, I wish I'd have made some time to publish some Bibles. No, this week is the time to make some time to publish some Bibles. 
Because those Bibles are going to go somewhere, and God's going to use those to get people saved before it is too late. And beyond publishing Bibles, let's share the Bible. Let's be the publishers with our gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even lost men love their children. In the case of Pharaoh, right, this man that we see is so wicked, and he obviously was, you know what? He wasn't happy that he lost his firstborn son. He, he wasn't so callous that he didn't care for his son. And this wasn't just his son. This was to be the son of God in the eyes of the Egyptians because he was a god. God was hitting him hard. He was pulling on those cords of pride. Even lost men can understand, understand God's response. You mess with his firstborn and it gets, it gets personal. Jesus remarks in Matthew 7, even an evil man... Even evil men are kind to their sons because God has promised that, you know, they have natural affection. I mean, you you see some guy in prison and tatted up, man, you mess with his kid, you're messing with the wrong person. He loves his kid. doesn't matter. Matthew 7, 9, the Bible says, Or what man is there of you whom if the son asks bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, he will give him a serpent? I mean, what kind of father would do that? Now, there are some wicked dads out there. They're of their father, the devil. Some of you have been raised by him, and I'm sorry about that. But God in heaven is good, and you know what? Most men, natural men, without Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying even, I mean, there's, there's hardly a man that's going to treat their child like this. They're, they're not going to give them a serpent for a fish or, or stone for a bread. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Man, God is good. Do you think He wanted to to get to this point where He just judged judged Him? Well, He did, because I believe, as I've taught already, before Moses ever showed up, He was done with how He was treating the firstborn of Israel. But God would have preferred that he repented. I believe if, if uh, there would have been any genuine repentance in Pharaoh's life, God would have given him more grace because that's the God we serve. He's a good God. By the way, the fact that many are no longer protecting their children from the perverts that, that, run, that want to mutilate them today is an indication of how perverse and hardened our society has become. It's getting pretty evil out there, beloved. You got men, we got men like, you know, just standing back. I don't know how this happens. It's disgusting. It really is. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's evil. That's the only other word you can put to it. You get some blogger stands up and says something about it. Hey, we ought to, we ought to stop this perversion. We ought to stop mutilating our children. I mean, common sense tells you that. Let's make a law. Let's just say you can't do that in our state. Well, instead of everybody going, that's a great idea, what, what happens? He gets crucified in the media. It's like up as down and right is wrong and it's all messed up well beloved that's because the train's coming the train is coming and it's also a result of the heterosexual perversion of the 60s and the 70s remember those days how many of us participated in all that praise god we're saved but one thing goes, the next thing, hey, what are we talking about? What, what's going to happen when heterosexual perversion is let loose all over the culture? What happens in 2000? Oh, oh now it's, we're dealing with homosexual perversion. Oh, wow, now 2020 comes. Forget the heterosexual perversion. Forget the homosexual perversion. Let's just go after the kiddos now. Pedophilia is on the plate. I was preaching about that 20 years ago. 20 years ago. When the guy up here at KU came out, the professor, and says, hey, let's study, let's see how profitable it is to study pedophilia and how we should consider this in our society. And the whole world erupted, went literally around the world. And I remember saying, guys, you just give it 20 more years and see where it's at. Because when I was a little kid and, and heterosexual sexual perversion was the thing everybody was amped up about and everybody was excited to let loose and liberate, and get rid of the old mores of the 50s, man. Let's get away from the 40s 
Let's forget there ever was a roaring 20s when we got judged back then with the Great Depression. Let's just forget about that history and let's just forget all that behind us. Let's have free love. Yeah, free love comes with an STD, right? That all came to a screeching, screeching halt with the AIDS, which is partially how I got saved. I, not because not I have AIDS, but because <laughs> that was so, that was such a, when I was a kid in high school, that was such a scary thing that everybody was talking about AIDS. And they were even, even lost people like me were going, is that one of the plagues of God? Whether it was or it wasn't, I tell you what, it made a lot of people check themselves and go, what are we doing? What are we doing? What has become of us? The wages of sin is death to those who are not covered in the blood of the Lamb. There is no solution to this. It's not about a moral, I'm not just preaching morality. It's not about moral change. It's about transformation from the inside out. Left to ourselves, we will continuously degenerate. But because of the word of God, we can be renewed in Christ. We can, have a new, we can be a new creature, have a new mind, have a new life. Man, we can have life and liberty in Christ. At midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, in verse 29. And death did not discriminate. From Pharaoh's house, from his throne, all the way down to the captive that was in the dungeon, to the firstborn of all the cattle, they were all destroyed. The wages of sin destroyed Pharaoh's religious system while he was at it. In Ephesians 2.2, in that passage I read, it mentions this world has a course. Before I was saved, I was on it. Before you were saved, you were on it. There is a whole world that is on that course today, and it's not the golf course. If you're not saved, you're on it. It's a path. It's a trajectory. It's, it's, a, it's leading your soul to a wide gate called hell. And it's the same path many in Egypt were, were on because they followed a false pagan religious system. The greatest religion in the world today is the worship of self. If, you're on, if, you, if you are your own God, that is, man, that is right where it's at. It can be cloaked in humanism, new ageism, but it's as old as Cain in the garden. When you want what you want and you will kill, kill, steal, and destroy to get your way, that is a clear indication that, you're on a, that your father is the devil and that's who you truly worship, no matter what you claim. Whether you're agnostic, atheist, or you claim to be a born-again, Bible-believing Baptist. You can put whatever title you want on it. But the Father, your Father, is the devil. God has a wrench to fit every nut, however, and slowly and systematically dismantled the paganism of even Egypt. So no one, not even Pharaoh, in all of his pride, could miss the fact that, you know what? I'm not a God. And if I'm a God, I'm a sorry God because I sure can't stand up to this God. Man, the sooner that we learn that, the better off we are. That's God's mercy. The wages of sin destroyed Pharaoh's standing as a God. And, it was, and, we, and we see this as a shadow of the coming Antichrist, as I already mentioned. He, he, he will establish world peace, bring war, and then demand worship as the only true God. And in an act that is called the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolations in the New Testament, it will be short-lived. However, as God brings him down to the sides of the pit, Satan goes from the anointed chair to the serpent in the garden, from the man of uh, sin to a worm that dieth not as he is cast in the lake of fire with all the souls of those who follow his pernicious ways. It won't matter if you were the anointed cherub or you were the, the, the left-out lost person that we never knew about. All of them will be cast into the lake of fire together. And so the wages of sin cost Egypt their economy as well. The previous nine plagues took care of the economy. Now God is striking at something much more important, and that's the heart and the soul of this nation. So point three, the wages of sin produces a great cry. And I want to end on this, going back to our text in Exodus chapter 12. Just look at verse 30 with me. We read over it. But think about this. As he says, in Pharaoh... <clears throat> rose up. Pharaoh rose up in the night. I don't know if he was restless. I don't know if the Lord prompted him. I don't know if he was just waiting. He and all his servants, and notice this, all the Egyptians, and all the Egyptians, everyone in that nation rose up. 
Not only did they rise up, what did they rise up to find? Well, of course, they went to find their firstborn dead, whether it was their, their, their children, uh, their sons, or their cattle. And then he says this, and there, went, and there was a great cry in Egypt, where there was not a house where there was not one dead. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Produced this tragic cry throughout the entire nation, lamenting the loss of their firstborn. It's only two verses. It's only one verse. It's easy to read over in 51 verses and just think, oh, no big deal. But you know what? That's a big deal. If you've ever had a child, and I haven't had a child that I've lost, I know many of you here have. I can't imagine, honestly. It's just terrible uh, to outlive your child. I mean, that's tough. There's a lot of grief going on. Under the best circumstances, there's a lot of grief going on. These are the worst circumstances. And God intended it to be that way. Like the tragic call that awakes us in the night, starting with Pharaoh, then the kingdom of Egypt awakes in the middle of the night, and it's a great cry, and it erupts throughout the land. Now the Egyptians, they felt the pain of what it was like to have a male child taken from them and fed to the crocodiles in the Nile. They know what some of those servants felt like, and you'd better believe they are getting the analogy. They felt the pain of the Hebrews and the, motherless, uh, the, the mothers and the fathers that were childless when their homes were destroyed by the policies of Pharaoh and the Pharaohs preceding this Pharaoh. They understood what God meant when he said to Moses, Israel is my firstborn, and he meant it. Now, God could have just wiped them all out, but he didn't because, again, he's merciful and kind. God prophesied to Moses that his great cry would, would come to pass, and, and that this great cry would come to pass in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 6, where he says, And there shall be a cry, a great cry, I should say, rather, throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was not like it, nor shall be like it any more. This is the first mention of the phrase great cry in Scripture. The second mention is here in verse 30 of chapter 12. And the third mention is in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1, when the noble Jews oppressed their countrymen with grievous taxes and property confiscation. And the Lord heard their cry. It was a great cry. And God sent a man named Nehemiah, and he liberated his own countrymen from the cry, the taxation, and the oppression of their, of their frankly, their greedy uh, uh, nobles of their own people. And he corrected their wicked way. And the last and full mention, every mention of this phrase of great cry, is found in Acts 23.9. And it's in response to a man named Paul who gave an account of why he was in custody. He, he, he says, I'm in custody because I believe in the resurrection. I believe that, that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead as has been promised in the Old Testament, and that's why I stand here before you. And suddenly there was a great turmoil, and all of a sudden the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those same people that in Acts chapter 44, Jesus says, your father's the devil. Do you know what the Bible says? There was a great cry, and they cried out, and they're fighting one with another. And, and they go into a tizzy over the doctrine that was taught by Paul because some believed in the resurrection and some didn't. When was the last time you wept for souls that were lost and headed for hell? Today, praise God, if you're born again, you don't, you're, there's not going to be a great cry of mourning. There's a great cry of rejoicing. Right? We're, we rejoice in the Lord. We're born again. We're saved. The Passover lamb has gone over us. There weren't a bunch of Jews sitting around crying. Right? Because why? The, the blood had covered them in their homes and everything was intact and, and God was preserving them, keeping, keeping them, sanctifying them, setting them apart for a purpose, for another battle to fight, right? Armies and going into the promised land, all those things that very similarly we are being set apart for as well. As God catches us away and takes us and runs us through the judgment seat of Christ and gets us ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb and returns with us at the second coming and then establishes his kingdom and, and gets us going forward in eternity future and all the things that are going to go on in the future. All these things we have to look forward to. We have a future and it's eternal in nature. It's with Christ. It's in fellowship with Christ. It's in fellowship with one another. It's in fellowship with those that have gone before us. It's, it's a glorious promise that we have, and it's as true as anything that you're ever going to read or see or do. It is the truth of God's Word. It is His promise. But there are a lot of people that are lost. Lost 
on the course of this world. They have no way to even know what to do, and it is our job to get the gospel to them, to interrupt them, to, uh, to, to get in their way, to, to throw down a, a block in front of them, to try to at least stop them as they just follow the devil right over the cliff. Obviously, it must be their choice. We can't make anyone get saved, but we should at least do everything in our power to proclaim the gospel before they walk off the wide path. When was the last time I wept for souls that were lost and headed for hell? I sat around last week and looked at this room of people. And this room represents millions more, literally. I'm not even exaggerating. 150 kids, young people. And I think where they come from and the nations, they come from nations with almost 2 billion people in the population. And I've been there, seen the people, seen the seas of people. I see people at this meeting that look like people I know in India because, well, they're related somehow. And I'm like, wow. Man, I, I should be weeping over this. It's not enough just to invite them to a FOI meeting, right? We've got to get them saved. We've got to get them the gospel. It's not enough just to, to, to just tell people or pray over people. I mean, we've got we to get the gospel there. We've got to do what we can do to, to, to share the gospel. Psalms 56 and verse 8 says this, Thou tellest my wonderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, when, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. You know, Jesus endured a lot of suffering. I mean, a lot. There's nothing recorded about him crying while he was getting whipped, while his flesh was being torn open, while they are putting a crown of thorns on, thorn on his head. None of that. Of course, he was, he was emaciated by that point. But you know what he wept over? People. Jesus wept as he looked over Jerusalem. As he saw people who didn't grasp the, the reality of the resurrection at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. Beloved, it's so important that we get a hold of what we, we got a hold of, that it gets a hold of us. Like, we've got a hold of eternal life, but it needs to get a hold of us, and it needs to change us and, and, and affect us. And, and I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. I'm convicted over this. This message is for me as much as anybody. This coming week, as we assemble Bibles, we need to weep over the souls that need to be saved. I don't care where they are. Cass County, United States, Latin America, Europe, Asia, Middle East. It doesn't matter. That should affect us, that people are lost. Maybe we weep over the state of our nation. Maybe we weep over the coming judgment of those who hear the whistle train coming down the tracks called the wages of sin, but are bound to the rails of judgment with the cords of sin. May we pray that they hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and, and are set loose by the sharp two-edged sword of God's word before it's too late. Because 2 Peter 3.9 says, For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why were there nine plagues before there was ten? Because God is long-suffering. Why has God not come back and judged all the perversion? Because God is long-suffering, and he's praying that we would be moved to go out and share the gospel while we have time. The good news is God hears the cry of the repentant. In Exodus, 7, or Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I, I know their sorrows. You know God knows our sorrows? And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and a large, under the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, <laughs> a land full of giant enemies. By the way, I love that about God. While they're, while they're wasting away in Egypt, he's preparing their promised land with enemies. Why? Because the victory's his. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. You know what happens to Israel? He brings them up out of Egypt, and he puts a sword in their hand and sends them into the promised land with Joshua. Why? To execute justice and judgment upon his enemies as an army. Because the train was coming down the tracks. 
430 years of being in the promised land was too long. And God had given them every opportunity to, to change their ways, I'm certain. Beloved, we serve a God who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He hears our cry. Psalm 17, 6 says, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me. O God, incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Psalms 88, 2 says, Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry. Psalms 102, 2, Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. And of course, we have even better promises in Christ, knowing that there is nothing separating us from the love of God, knowing that uh, that uh, there's only one mediator between uh, God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have a direct access to God. We're called in Hebrews uh, 4 to come directly to him. But if we want God to incline his ear into our prayer, it helps tremendously if we incline our ear to his word. That we actually listen to what he's saying. I'm not talking about Pharaoh anymore. I'm talking about the saints, the Christians. It's important that Moses heard what God said so he could say what God told Moses to say. Right? It's important that we hear what God says. We've got two ears and one mouth. It's important that we use our ears to hear what God says and our eyes to hear what God says, see what God tells us, so we can speak what God wants us to speak. Proverbs 4.20, My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. You've got to incline it, right? You've got to lift it up. Proverbs 2, 1 says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Beloved, we, we live in a time when Jesus is knocking on the door of the church and many just ignore him. I'm not talking about the lost talking about the saved we're not crying out for knowledge of him looking for him to sustain us we look to things that this world provides for safety for security while we proclaim to be saved by the blood of the lamb and by the way if you're born again you are we need to make sure to fill up the bottles or the bottle with tears that matter this week as we assemble 5,000 whole bibles and 30,000 john and romans May we pray over the, the destination of God's word. May we think about the plight of those who don't know Christ and are lost. Oh, not just because they live in a poor country, not just because they have bad circumstances. I mean because they're lost and without hope and without Christ. That's much more of a serious problem than their, 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 uh, their uh, uh, socioeconomic problems. May the wages of sin impact our hearts and cause us to witness to those in our spheres of influence at work, at school, in our neighborhoods, in our families. You may be saved from God's wrath, but millions in our own country will wake up to death when they take their last breath. Like the rich man in Luke 16, it'll be too late. Once they're in the fiery torment, he found out it's too late, too late, too late. What can I do? What can I do? Send a messenger, send a messenger. What did, what did Abraham say? He said, hey, listen. If they won't receive the words of God, they won't receive Moses and the prophets, they ain't going to hear even if one raises from the dead. One of the tricks in the Antichrist's uh, plan to coming up is, is to have a fake resurrection. Beloved, if you don't receive this book, let me go over here. This book... If you don't receive this book, you're deceiving yourself. The train is coming. Today is the day of salvation. The wages of sin is death to the lost. The wages of sin will be paid. The wages of sin cost more than the lost can afford. The wages of sin produces a great cry, but the wages of sin are paid for the saved. And that's the good news. i got to end on a good note. You know, our victory is the world's defeat. In Exodus 12, 31 through 51, the story turns as Israel is freed from the bondage of Egypt. Pharaoh meets with Moses and, and tells them, he says, go, get out of here. Go do what you need to do. Get out of here. Take everything you want. Get out. We have been freed to serve our Father in heaven. We have been commanded to go. Beloved, we have been uh, freed by the blood of the Lamb, and we need to mobilize and get the gospel where it needs to go to those that are lost and make disciples of those that are saved. A mixed multitude will follow the children of Israel 
out of Egypt because they have forsaken the gods of Egypt to follow the God of Moses and the children of Israel. Perhaps today you're here and you've not had enough of the wages of sin, or maybe you have. Perhaps you've realized that the burden is, is more than you can bear. And if you continue, well, you continue, it will not only impact, impact you, but it will affect the ones you love. How many a life issues testimony has it taken us to realize that oftentimes it's the ones we love that finally get us where we need to go to realize how, how sinful we really are? Maybe this message is like a wake-up call for those that are driving 100 miles an hour off the edge of a cliff. You can change the trajectory even now. You can change that destination. Because you know at the end of Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. But, but, amen, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He loves us so much. He loves you so much that he took his firstborn son and nailed him to a cross in your stead so that his just wrath would be on him so that he could look at you and forgive you of your sin and usher you into the kingdom of God. It's not by works of righteousness that we do. No, it's not. It's because of his son and the work that he did on the cross that we're saved. It's the Holy Spirit of God that teaches us these things. And if you're not saved, God wants you to be saved. He wants you to know him in a very personal way. And he's done everything in his power to mitigate, to stop, to staunch the wages of sin by paying the sin debt himself. And all you have to do is receive that freely, and you are saved. Amen? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to once again look at